we have been talking about these two great themes that are a single coin. One is the reprocessing of anger into grace, and the other side is the costly demonstration of unexpected love, which comes as a result of that reprocessing of anger into grace. And so the end of the line of those two great pillars that are the uh, single coin and in a way explain to us a part, not all, but a part of the mystery of the Christian faith and the mystery and power of the cross. The last word is unexpected, a demonstration of unexpected love. All right, now we have to, uh, would you turn to page uh, 64 in your study sheets? It's about the, it's really dumb, it's about the fifth page in. But it's uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 31 through 14, verse 1. Now, I'm on a one-person campaign to try and rescue this text from the, from the wedding industry. <laughs> and, and you can't imagine. I mean, I'm glad it's read at weddings. It's great. You know, that's fine. But what, what leaves me somewhat uneasy and disturbed, slightly disturbed, is when every time I talk about this, then somebody comes, oh, yes, well, the last time I heard that was at my wedding 35 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, this is not meant to be a text for weddings. It's a text for the Christian faith. There is no place else in the entire New Testament that the nature of Christian love is set out so brilliantly and so completely as we have right here. And if we were going to talk about God as love, then we'd better understand what the nature of that love is, and here is the place in which Paul sets it all out. Now, by way of introduction, of course, you all know that the word is agape, which was a rare Greek word used only in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament, in the Song of Songs. In the Greek language generally, it was kind of a weak word. The early church picked that word up and said, here's a word that kind of means intend towards. They didn't like the words that were available because they were already loaded with other meanings. Words like eros and things like that. So they said, we've got to take our own word and fill it with our own fresh meaning." And so they took this word that, as I mentioned, barely known in the Greek. Not, it was out there, but rarely used. And five things can be said about it before we start looking at this text. And the first is that it's universal. It's not just for the Jew or for the Greek. It is also for the enemy. It is beyond the community. Uh, Bonhoeffer, the famous German Lutheran martyr, uh, writes about love of the enemy in prison and he says, the enemy is not the person whom when you're nice to, that person turns into your friend. The enemy is the person, regardless of how much compassion and love you pour on them, they remain stubbornly and uncompromisingly against you. That's your enemy. Uh, and also part of this is we are to love our enemy, not to join them. <laughs> There's a difference. We can still oppose evil in the enemy, and we don't join them. But if we love the enemy, we can even fight the enemy. But by loving the enemy, this will condition the rules of engagement. There are things we won't do. And we look beyond the conflict to the hope of a relationship when the conflict is over. All right, number one, it's universal. Number two, it's the new royal law, the law of Christ. The command of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh, his Torah, 
All of these things come to play. Isaiah 42 talks about when the anointed one, the Messiah of God comes, he's going to come with a new Torah. And the author, Jesus and the authors of the New Testament know that. And the new Torah is the new royal command of love that is most perfectly explained in the text we're going to look at. Number three, it is the pattern of it is the love and life of Christ. When we really want to understand what this is all about, what the love of God is all about, what the nature of God is all about, and what the word means as we see it in the text before us that we're going to examine, it is the life of Christ that is always always the, the, the lens through which we look at this great word. Number four, it is an essential ingredient for all other gifts and superior to all of them. At the end, Paul says the highest of these, we usually say the greatest of these, it can always be, also be read as the highest of these, which I think is a better way to read it. Uh, it is, must be, and at the same time, it must be a component of every other gift. Every other gift is critically flawed if it does not have this component. And then finally, the source is the indwelling spirit of God in our lives. We love because he first loved us. And without his love pouring into our lives, we're not going to be able to love anybody else. Uh, Jesus taught us to love God and love the neighbor, and that's the right order. Why? We don't love the neighbor because we get some really nice strokes from the neighbor when we do. And quite often the neighbor is not a very nice person to love. What are we going to do now? We're not getting back those strokes and so we quit loving them. No, we are not sustained in loving the neighbor because of what we get back. We are sustained by the unchanging love of God to us. The engine that keeps my love going in as much as I'm able to within my flawed discipleship is that the love of God to me is unchanging and thereby the response I get or don't get from the neighbor is irrelevant to the continuation of the quality of the love that I extend to that neighbor. I'm not loving them because they respond. I'm loving them because the love of God to me hasn't changed. Okay, with those five ingredients as a sort of uh, general framework for, which, for our topic this evening, let's take a look and see what we can learn about this incredible hymn to love that we have in 1 Corinthians 13. We mentioned already this morning that this particular essay, which is about men and women in worship, that it has seven components and it starts in chapter 11 and it ends in chapter 14. And Paul assumes all the way through it that you follow his outline and that you understand the way that outline is put together. So, for example, in chapter 14 at the end, it says, let the women be silent in church. Why? So they can listen to the prophets. And the prophets have got a problem because they're all trying to hog the mic. Now, And he tells the prophets, please don't do that. Please wait in turn and prophesy in order. But what gender are those prophets? If you read chapter 11, you will find out that the men and the women are prophesying. So when you get to chapter 14, the prophets that are trying to hog the mic are men and women. And so the ladies who are chatting in church because they can't follow, probably because they can't follow the Greek... 
And Paul says, really, you know, ask your husbands when you get home because they know a little bit more Greek than you do. They're out on the job and they pick up more than you do. And you really speak German or you speak something else and you really can't follow this Greek. And so you, what is that word? And I didn't get that. Would you go through that again? That sentence was too long. I didn't understand your big long words. Would you please get some shorter ones for me? Don't ask those questions in church because your husbands will be able to explain it when you get home. When those women are told, don't chat in church, why aren't they supposed to chat in church? So they can listen to the women and the men who are prophesying. Now, if you lose the structure of the essay, then you don't remember that the prophets that the women are told to be quiet so they can listen to them are men and women. You won't catch that because you've already forgotten about chapter 11. But when you see the whole essay together, which Paul assumes, then you're going to understand that. And when Paul in chapter 11 says, uh, this is a command of the Lord, what's he talking about? He's not talking about the command that the women should be silent in church. He's talking about the royal command of the Lord, which is chapter 13. He is, in fact, summarizing the entire essay. Okay, so the essay itself begins with men and women begins with men and women in leadership and ends with men and women in, in worship, as worshipers. And then the next envelope is disorders in worship. And the first one, they're talking about uh, getting drunk at Holy Communion. And the second one, they're talking about prophets who don't wait their turn. And then the next envelope is about the spiritual gifts in theory in chapter 12. And in chapter 14, it's in practice, and the two form a whole. And the essay on love is in the middle, which, as we mentioned this morning, is meant to relate profoundly to everything from chapter 11 through chapter 14. Okay, with that clear in the back of our minds, let's look and see what we have on the page that is in, in front of you. No exam, folks. I just know you're such, you're such bright people. You all got that cold, cold back there. I am deeply convinced that the last verse in chapter 12 is a hinge verse. It does make sense to conclude chapter 12, but also it is a profound introduction to chapter 14. And at the very end, at the bottom, number 16, which is chapter 14, 1, as you can see on your study sheets, is a conclusion to what comes before and an introduction to what follows. And thereby, I think we should read it, as we've done here, from my cameo number one down through cameo 16. All right. Now, what, is, what do we see at the very beginning? Continue in zeal for the highest spiritual gifts. You mean there are higher and lower spiritual gifts? Yes. That's exactly what Paul means. And in addition, I will give you directions for a journey over a mountain pass. Now, where on earth did Bailey get that? <laughs> We're accustomed to, the, to King James, which says, I will show you a more excellent way. All right? When you read it that way, I will show you a more excellent way. Then it looks like Paul has discussed the spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And he said, look, now these, everybody's yelling and screaming about these things. So why don't you just dump all that stuff and I'll show you something else that's much better, the way of love. Forget about all of that. Here's the better way, a more excellent way. And then at the end, he says... Run after love and continue in zeal for the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Hey, I thought you told me to throw all this stuff in, and now you're telling me to go for it. 
And so then critics come along and say, well, yes, the connectives are rough. You know, they're just, the thing doesn't fit really very well here. And probably in the original, we had the discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 12. And then we had a second discussion of spiritual gifts in chapter 14. And then the conclusion was love at the end. Because when you put it this way, it improves the logic. And my question is, whose logic? Isaiah's or Aristotle's? Yes, it would definitely improve Aristotle's logic, but it will not pr improve Isaiah's logic because Isaiah puts his climax in the middle. And Paul assumes that his readers understand this. All right, if the thing... Oh, oh, yes, other authors have said, well, you know, probably Paul's original copy kind of fell apart and when they sewed it back up, they didn't get the pages straight. That's another solution. Well, what about this, quote, rough connectives? You know, dump the spiritual gifts, go for the spiritual gifts. Is there any other way to understand this phrase, I will show you a more excellent way? When you look at it carefully, the phrase I will show you means I will explain directions. How do I get to the conference center? The leadership of the conference was very kind to me. They sent you come south on the turnpike. You get off at such and such a place and you follow such and such, 119 south, and then you come to this town and you come here, then you turn left, then you turn right. That's what this word means. It's not the road. It's the directions to get someplace. I will give you directions for a journey. Don't read the word road because the road sounds like the turnpike or it sounds like... Uh, route 79 or Route 80 or something like that. No, this is a journey. There's a difference between the road and the journey. I'm trying to get to this conference and I make a journey. We get up early in the morning, we get all ready and we get going. It takes about three hours and here we are. And that's a journey. And, and tomorrow we're all going to take journeys going home, regardless of what road you go on. So I will give you directions for a journey. Now, what kind of a journey? All right. The word in Greek is huperbolein from which we get the English word hyperbole. Balo is to throw, and huper means to throw over, something that is beyond the hyperbole. It goes beyond ordinary speech. Hodon is the Greek word for road. Now, Paul is the only author of the New Testament who uses this word huperbolein, and he uses it about seven or eight times, and always he intensifies a quality that is in the text. If he starts talking about grace and he adds hyperbolein grace, it means exceedingly gracious. When he starts talking about sin, he'll add hyperbolein and it means very sinful. And without exception, Paul always puts a quality into the text plus or, or minus, negative or positive, and then he intensifies it with the word hyperbolein. We could translate it into English, exceedingly. However, when you put Paul's definition, which is exceedingly, and you put it into this text, it doesn't make any sense because there's no quality there. If he'd said a crooked way and then add hyperbolein, a very crooked way, that would make sense. Or a straight way, and he adds hyperbolein, and he means a very straight way. That makes sense. But how can you have an exceedingly way? There's no quality to intensify. A way can be, you know, straight or crooked or whatever. And we don't have any qualifier. 
All right, so the translators have scratched their heads and figured out it's got to be positive because he's talking about love, so we'll call it more excellent. They just kind of pulled that out of the hat. Is there any other meaning for this word in the Greek of the first century? There is, although neither... Well, it's in the great big massive dictionary uh, that called Liddell and Scott that the British produced, but it is not in the Arndt Gingrich Bauer dictionary of New Testament Greek that a German spent 10 hours a day for 40 years and then three other scholars came along and updated it. It's a great book. I use it all the time, but sometimes you've got to go from the shorter one to the big granddaddy of all, which, which Cambridge put out. And you go back to that granddaddy and you find that Liddell and Scott tell us that there is another meaning for this, which only one, one translator of the New Testament, James Moffat at the University of Chicago, picked it up, but he's the only one who has, and it means a mountain pass. The road that goes up and over. The mountain pass. So this is fully legitimate. I can give you five texts in which this is used in the first century before the time of Paul or in the century that Paul lived in, the first century, in which this word is used in the Koine Greek, literary Koine Greek of the first century period. And when you put that in, all of a sudden, the thing makes sense. I will give you uh, directions for a journey over a mountain pass. And what is the mountain pass? It is the way of love. What is Paul talking about? What is involved when we start talking about a mountain pass? This means the high road, not the low road. This requires discipline. It requires energy. It requires careful planning. It requires commitment, long-term commitment. It requires training. It requires diligence. It requires a deep desire to make it over that high mountain pass. And Paul takes this imagery to talk about the way of love. The way of love that when you make it to the top, it is glorious and it is beautiful and it is thrilling and it is fulfilling and it is opening up new vistas that you never dreamed were out there and that on a clear day, that view from the top is so gorgeous and so exciting and so life-changing for you. All the energy required to get there is worth it. Fantastic image. If, as Paul suggests, is comparing the way of love to a stiff climb over a mountain pass, we would expect him to build on that image with other appropriate phrases and metaphors, and indeed, he does so. Altogether, there are six occasions in this homily where Paul's language echoes or or complements the mountain pass journey. These are the higher spiritual gifts. We've just mentioned that. Then there's the journey over the pass. And right away, in the third verse, he starts talking about a faith that removes mountains. If you've got enough faith to remove the mountains so you don't have to climb it, and you have no love, it's not worth anything. Love never falls. We've translated it, love never fails. We've got a strong tendency in the English language tradition of the translation of the scriptures to take clear and... Uh, and compelling met- concrete metaphors and turn them into abstractions. We've already done that with the high mountain pass. We've turned it into a more excellent way. And Paul writes, love never falls. 
Middle Eastern versions, Arabic, Syriac, Armenian, have never, and, nev and, and Hebrew, have never made this mistake. Why? Paul is thinking of that big climb up over that mountain pass, and love doesn't fall. And when you climb that mountain pass, the farther you get up, when you do fall, it's more and more painful. But love doesn't fall. We may fall. We may fail. But love doesn't fall. It's a great contribution to the collection of images around climbing and heights and mountains that Paul is evo invoking. And then finally, at the end, he says, run after love. There's another one. We turn it into seek love. Well, yeah, well, running is something else. You've got a concrete image of somebody running down the road. The journey over the mountain pass is hard because it's uphill, and in spite of that, you're supposed to run. So we've got, we've got, we've got athletic imagery at the beginning, climb the mountain, and we have athletic Im imagery at the end, run after love. And Corinth was a sports-crazy town because they had the, the Isthmian Games every two years, and so they were about as crazy about sports as people in western Pennsylvania are about the Steelers. <laughs> okay, so now we've got the mountain pass, and now he's ready to talk about the nature of love. And as you can see from the piece of paper in front of you, it divides into three sections. And the first section talks about love and the spiritual gifts. That's 2 through 5. And then in 11 through 15, he comes back to a second discussion about love in the spiritual gifts. And in the middle, he defines love. When I first noticed the way Paul had gotten this together, I noticed that the positives are in number 6 and in number 10, and the negatives are in the middle. And the negatives are, of course, always, when you're using ring composition, are always have a heightened interest. That's the center of the thing. And I said to myself, why did he do that? It would have been just as easy to have split that list of eight phrases in two, put half of them at the beginning and half of them at the end, and then he could have had that wonderful stuff about the positives of love in the very center. Why didn't he do that? Why has he got the negatives in the center? And then I noticed that all the way through 1 Corinthians, up through chapter 12, Paul is very gently dropping one of these words after another into the text. And so finally, when he gets to chapter 13, most of them he's already mentioned. And he has the negatives in the center because don't notice now, folks, but it describes his readers. And so that's why he puts them in the middle. Hey, you guys and gals, this is the way you've been acting, and I've nailed you on it all the way through the text. Now I'm going to put the list together. All right, with an awareness of how this is all put together, let's now go through it very briefly and see some of the really good stuff that we have here that Paul has given to us. He starts off and he says to them, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am banging brass or a clanging cymbal. Corinth was famous for its brass making. And they were so famous for it, they had a special way to finish it when they got done. And, of course, the town was burnt by the Romans in 146 B.C., and then 100 years later it was rebuilt. And the craftsmen who had scattered away someplace else, their descendants came back, and they restarted the same industry that they had before. And particularly antique Corinthian brass was so famous that wealthy Romans collected the stuff. And it was a big deal to have a case full of Corinthian brass. 
And when Herod built the temple of Jerusalem, and he, didn't, he wanted everything to be really, really fancy, he decided that he would have the main gate that went into the temple complex in the middle where the Holy of Holies was and the temple building was, and he decided, no, a gold door isn't good enough. We've got to have Corinthian brass. So this was more expensive than gold, and he got two great big doors that it took 40 people to open, and it was carefully designed Corinthian brass all up and down. Boy, he was really proud of that good stuff. Now, there is one place in the Middle East where there is still a brass maker's market, and this is in the town of Aleppo, the town that's a couple thousand years old, really not too old. Damascus is much older than that. But nevertheless, 2,000 years is long enough to be kind of established, you know. <laughs> and uh, so a brass making is one of the big uh, trades of Aleppo. And I wanted to see this brass market, particularly because I was studying this text. So the, the market, which had the carpenter's section and the weaver's section and, and all of that, the clothing section, the shoes section, and the, also, and the, uh, the agricultural implement section, and had the brass section. So I started to ask how, uh, how, I want to go to the brass market, how do I get there? So they tell me, you go down this road, turn left, turn right. Uh, when I got within about three quarters of a mile, I didn't need to ask any more questions. Why? Because you could hear them. Now, everybody's shop is about six feet by eight feet. And the street is about this wide, a little bit wider, about like this. So the space of this room would be enough for 70 craftsmen. What are they doing? It's hot most of the year, so they're sitting out front, and most of the things they make are not poured, they're hammered. And you got a flat piece of brass, and you're bang, 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 and you're trying to hammer this into a pot or into a bucket or into something to, to, for, uh, for cooking down uh, goat milk into cheese or whatever you're making. And I'm, I'm really interested in these guys and what they're making, and I want to talk to them. And I have to get my mouth that far away from their ear and shout absolutely at the top of my voice, and they can barely hear me, and then i got to reach over and put my ear right in front of their mouth, and they scream at the top of their voice, and they're able to answer my question. That's the kind of racket that's going on in the brass market. You can't imagine how loud that is. Haven't you ever had kids that when they wanted to make noise, and they'd go around banging on, banging on a piece of uh, some kind of tin out of the kitchen? All right, now you get about 300 people doing this in the same space. And what kind of noise are you talking about? Paul wants to get customers. He's got to go to the market, and the market is dominated by people who are making brass. And he's telling these Corinthians who are very proud over the fact that they speak in tongues. And he's saying to them, you despise other people who don't speak in tongues, right? And the fact, and you think you're spiritually their superiors, right? When you do that, you're speaking in tongues. It's worthless. It's like the racket down in the market downtown. It means absolutely nothing. Pretty strong language. But that's what he's saying. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, the language of the angels is different from the tongues which my charismatic friends who have this gift 
uh, are used is different from the language of angels. Don't ma imagine that it is what the, what the angels think. And have not love, I am banging brass or a clanging cymbal. Very powerful image for the people who lived in a town where the major industry of the town was brass making. He goes on and he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. Now notice number two says, if I do this and I do this and have no love, then I am this. In number four, if I do this and this and have no love, I'm this. In number five, if I do this and this, no love, then this. Why does he break the pattern in number three? I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> Maybe he didn't have enough space on the page. Could have been something that simple. In any case, what is clear is that by putting, when you put number two and number three together, you have tongues and you have uh, prophecy and you have knowledge. I put that on the right, tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. And when we get down to number 11, Paul is going to talk about prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And when we get down to 15, he's going to talk about faith, hope, and love. These are two lists of gifts, and I'm deeply convinced that the first list are the lower gifts, and the second, gift, the second list are the higher gifts. And Paul expects that we understand that as we go through this hymn. Why? Because in number four, he says, if I have all faith so as to remove the mountains so I don't have to climb them and have not love, I am nothing. And if I dole out my possessions, this means I give my possessions away one, one dollar at a time until they're all gone. And if I surrender my body and some of the translations of the New Testament into Syriac and into Coptic have the word that I, that it may, that I may burn which we've changed into, that it may burn. That's the Greek word, kauchethesomai, to burn. If you change one letter in the middle, you have the word kauchethesomai, which is what all of the ancient Greek New Testaments have before the 5th century, and that means that I may boast. Now, what does Paul mean when he talks about boasting? There's a positive to boast, a negative for boasting, and that's when you rely on yourself for your salvation, and that's a bad, you're not supposed to do that. But there is a positive for boasting for Paul, and when the positive, he means when you stand before the righteous judge on the day of judgment, you should be able to say, I went beyond the call of duty. You assigned me to do X, and I did X and Y. And that's a big argument Paul has with the Corinthians. They want him to get paid so they can control him. And he doesn't want to get paid. And he says, I have to preach the gospel because that's my calling. And for my calling, when I stand before Christ on the day of judgment, what did you do? Well, I preach the gospel. There's nothing extra for me because I have to preach the gospel. I don't have any choice. But if I preach the gospel and don't take any money... I wasn't asked to do that. That's beyond the call of duty. And I will be able to boast in that day. That's what he's talking about, boasting as a positive. Listen to this, 1 Thessalonians. What is our hope and joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? Or in Philippians, 
holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may boast that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I'm going to go beyond what Christ asked him to do. Or 1 Corinthians 9, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I preach not the gospel. But if I do it without any receiving any money, I wasn't asked to do that, and that will be my ground of boasting. So there is a positive quality, quality of that, and Paul is talking about the end of history. How do we know that? Because he says, I will gain nothing. Even if I surrender my body as a living sacrifice, as he talks about in Romans, and I give away all my money so there's nothing left, when it comes to the day of judgment, there's no reward if I have no love. He's talking about hope and his vision of hope for the end of times. Thereby, number four and number five talk about faith, hope, and love, just as faith, hope, and love shows up at the end of the entire essay. All right. Now, let's go back just a wee bit. Uh, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, wow, that's really something, and all knowledge, wow, that's even more amazing. And remember, Paul has already told them back in chapter 9 that knowledge without love is worthless. I have spent my life on the edge of the academy. I'm dedicated to the life of the church and not to the agenda of the academy, so I'm kind of on the edge. They've let me in the door, but kind of sit at the back and don't make too much noise, and that's fine. I'm, I'm glad to do that. But in that world... These two are not necessarily connected. You're supposed to be scientific and rigorous and rational and thoroughgoing and if necessary, you demolish everybody around you. And nobody hints that without love, all your knowledge is worthless. What do you mean worthless? I make money when I write this way. Okay, Paul has a little different agenda. And in, when in chapter 8 he's saying, don't let your knowledge be something that will undermine your neighbor who doesn't have that knowledge. Don't destroy his faith because you happen to have information he doesn't have. Be sure that love and knowledge are always wedded together. And when they're not, your knowledge is worthless. Pretty powerful stuff for the kind of world that we all know is around us. All right, now he's ready to talk about the definitions of love, which we have in the middle. And he starts off in a marvelous way by using a word for patience, and he gets a number 10 at the end, and he's got another word for patience. And these are the two great Greek words that define the nature of patience. And the first one is macrothumia, Thumia has to do with anger, and macro has to do with far away. The one who is able to put their anger far away. And in the Greek language, this is used for the patience of the powerful. I am powerful, and I am able to clobber you and to demolish you, but I don't do it because I love you. The other word for, ah, yes, uh, this is now David standing over the sleeping body of Saul in the middle of the night, and Saul has come to kill David. 
And David's two buddies who are there with him say, let's have a preemptive strike here. He's come to kill you. You have the right to kill him. David says, no, I'm not going to do it. And the same thing happens again in another story in David's life when he could have killed Saul and he didn't do it. Or this, uh, yes, so this is, this, is the, this is the ability of the powerful to demolish the weak, but because of their love, because of their patience, they have macrothumia, they choose not to do so. The end of the list, down in number 10, patiently endures all, and the word is hupomone. This is now the patience of the sufferer, the one who's weak, the one who is under somebody else's power and can do nothing about it. The one who suffers under. This is Mary standing at the cross, and she can't argue with Pilate, and she can't argue with the high priest, and he can't, she can't argue with the soldiers, and she can't go to the Sanhedrin, and she can't stop what is happening. The one choice she can make is to decide not to walk away. And she makes that decision. And primarily also, of course, our Lord dying on the cross. So the patience of the powerful and the patience of the weak. The patience of those who have the ability to hurt others and choose not to do so, and the patience of those who suffer unjustly and can't do anything about it. Those two are the bookends that Paul sets up for his discussion of love. The second word is love is kind. This is a word for great strength and great gentleness and is used for gentle horses. He then goes on and says that love is not jealous, does not burn with jealousy. Paul has already told the, his readers in chapter 12 that they are to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. It's easy to weep with those who weep, and it's very difficult to rejoice with those who re rejoice if they happen to be rejoicing because they got a promotion which you didn't get. Their book is published, and yours is sitting on the shelf. And there's a party to congratulate them, and you go, mm. <laughs> It's easy to weep with those who weep, no problem. Can the foot rejoice with the hand when the hand has a gold ring and the foot doesn't? That's what we're talking about here. The jealousy that eats away at all kinds of human relationships, all kinds of levels, isn't there when there is love. Then it goes on and says that love does not boast. This means you don't brag about yourself trying to make an impression. You don't really like yourself, so you try and sew yourself off as something greater than you really are, hoping people won't find out. Or it's when you flatter other people, hoping to gain advantage over them. If they like that flattery, pretty soon they'll come back and you will be able to control them. You don't brag and you don't flatter, and you're not a windbag. Not with yourself and not with other people. Then he goes on and says that love is not arrogant. And this has to do with, this is the occupational disease of scholars, intellectual arrogance. And if scholars don't fight this, they're going to fall into it. And it is an occupational hazard of people who are scholars. And then it goes on and says that love is, the, is not without grace, as schimone. The schema is everything about your person which strikes the senses of somebody else. Your dress, 
your bearing, your discourse, and your actions and manner of life. All of this is your scheme, your schema. And love is not a schema. You don't try and look decent, just be, or, but it's, not, it's not humility that says, well, I really don't care what I look like. When you act that way, then you're failing to love yourself and you're failing to love other people because other people have to look at you. <laughs> so because I love other people, I try to present myself to be fairly presentable. You know, I try and shave and have a clean shirt and all that good stuff. And we do that because we love others, and it's not, you know, the, the more humble you are, then the more you really don't care about what you look like. Paul would not agree. In the very middle, not seeking that which is for itself. You're supposed to be seeking, number one, at the top for the higher spiritual gifts, and you're supposed to be seeking what is at the bottom, the spiritual gifts, and one has to do with of the Spirit, and the other has to do with a grace through which it comes, in the middle, you're not supposed to seek what is for yourself. What's this all about? Justice is more than I care about your rights. I'm sorry, I care about my rights. It means I also care about your rights. In Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1, there's a marvelous verse which says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are practiced under the sun. And behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Amazing verse. Leslie Newbegin, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, wrote a book about theology of mission, and in it he has a chapter on justice. The book is entitled The Open Secret. And he writes as follows. If we acknowledge the love of the God of the Bible, we are committed to struggle for justice in society. Justice means giving to each his due. Our problem, as seen in the light of the gospel, is that each of us overestimates what is due to him or her as compared with what is due to the neighbor. Consequently, justice cannot be done, for everyone will judge in his own favor. Justice is only done when each one acknowledges a judge with authority over him in relation to whose judgment he must relativize his own. A just society can flourish only when its members acknowledge the justice of God. If I do not acknowledge a justice which judges the justice for which I fight, I am an agent not of justice, but of a mindless tyranny. I lived, we lived in that kind of a tyranny. The Lebanese Civil War, first ten years. The government had collapsed. The police had disappeared from the streets. There wasn't any army. There was no National Guard. The electricity was off. There was no water in the water mains. The phones didn't work. And there was, and there was, no, there, the, there was no, nobody to go when you had the, you, you know, you couldn't reach anybody anyway. The courts were all closed and the prisons were all open. And every man had a gun. And there were 150 militias in the town that we knew about with a new coalition every night. And any of them could have killed me, and there would have been no one to call my wife because there wasn't any phone. 
And you ask every one of those 150 militias, what are you fighting for? We fight only for the justice of our cause. All 150 of them. All against the others. We lived in that mindless tyranny. Justice means I care about justice for me and I care about justice for you. John Perkins, a good friend of mine, wonderful African-American Christian, and it was a fantastic ministry that he had in Georgia and elsewhere in America. And after being arrested and beaten unconscious by the police and after his brother was murdered in a racial incident, he decided that justice wasn't a big enough word. It was a fighting word because everybody fought for their rights. And he thought he would start with the word reconciliation because out of the word of one people are reconciled, then after I am reconciled to you, I care about justice for you and not just justice for me. And out of that reconciliation, I become your brother. And I care about that you should have a just society and not just for me. He goes on, and then, he, then he, the next one he says that, uh, that love is not quick to anger. It's not touchy. It doesn't take offense. Love doesn't have a short fuse. And then we come to one that I spent a great deal of time on in my book, and I want to read a little bit of it for you because I think it's so important. And I'm going to read it because I can say it more quickly, with condensed rather than try and tell it and not get too wordy. Because what Paul says here is not calculating evil or he doesn't keep accounts of wrongs. And that's great. And I taught that for a long time. And then I noticed that in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, sorry, 4, Paul has a list of things that had happened to him. And in 2 Corinthians, he's got two lists. One is in chapter 4 and one is in chapter 11. And the list in chapter 11 is long and very sobering. And here you're telling me that love doesn't keep accounts for wrongs. How come you record just for the Corinthians, you've got three lists? Are you violating your own text when you, when you, list, when you give those? I wrestled with this for about a year, and here's where I came out. Love keeps no account of wrongs. The word used here is from the world of accounting. Love allows the hurts of the past to fade away. All, of all of Paul's admonitions in this list, this directive is perhaps the most difficult. When one is deeply hurt, the pain of those wounds remains for a very long time. Is it forever? When the wrongs suffered are serious but relatively limited, as time passes, the hurt can fade. In such a case, Paul's admonition applies with relative ease. There is an Egyptian proverb which says, Your friend will swallow gravel for you. Your enemy maximizes all your mistakes. Love can absorb evil, as we noted, in the, noted earlier. But here we see that love manages to erase the ledger of wrong suffered that the mind, unprompted, repeatedly recalls. But when deep wounds are inflicted, the problem is greatly complicated. Paul's advice is extremely puzzling in the light of his own suffering. Already in this epistle, as we mentioned in chapter 4 and in chapter 11, the catalog of his sufferings is long and sobering. He had not forgotten any of those painful events, and the list was available in his mind for recall when he needed. There again, he recorded his response. It ends with, 
Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? He does not recite the list to demonstrate his strength, but rather his weakness, and to declare his sympathy and empathy for all who are made to fall. Yet the wrongs were remembered. How are we to reconcile these lists with Paul's affirmation that love keeps no record of wrongs? As a survivor of seven Middle Eastern wars stretching from 1942 to 1995, suffering and injustice surrounded our family for decades, and some of that suffering reached into the depths of our own lives. Thus, for us, the above concern opens deep questions. Yes, Paul had the lists, and he remembered them. He did not quote them to brag about how much he had suffered or to get even the score. At the end of the third essay, he did not write, I can never forget those Jews who stoned me and left me for dead. Nor does he say, I was ridiculed mercilessly in public on Mars Hill by those arrogant Greeks. Rather, he gently advises, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks. His suffering did not dictate how he would respond to his persecutors. But recognizing this, the question remains, why are the lists still in his mind? How can we reconcile his description of love that forgets and his recorded remembrances of his suffering? What and how should we remember? The 20th century opened with the Armenian genocide that began in the 1890s and continued through the First World War and beyond. There was both genocide and ethnic cleansing. The pressure to remember what happened is intensified by the stubborn denial of the Turkish government that anything out of the ordinary for wartime took place. The ethnic cleansing of Palestine from 1947 to 1949 involved the ruthless driving out of about 50% of the settled Palestinian population of the Holy Land. The Israeli historian Ilan Papi documents the fact that somewhere between 800,000 to 1 million people were driven from their homes or killed from November 47 to January 49. In the process, 537 towns and villages were first purified, the language of Ben-Gurion, by violence. The people were killed and expelled who had lived there for centuries, indeed, for millennia. And their forced departure, after their forced departure, the buildings were mostly destroyed. As with the Turkish government, from the very beginning, this ethnic cleansing was and is denied by the Israeli government. The same type of tragedy has played itself out in the South Sudan, where from 1955 to the present, millions have died due to violence and war-instigated starvation. As in Armenia and Israel, the Sudanese acts of ethnic cleansing bordering on genocide are flatly denied by the Sudanese government. Going further back in history to the 19th century, we can bear witness to the brutal atrocities against the native peoples of North America and our hundreds of years of African slavery and the brutality to the indigenous peoples of Australia. Christian, Jewish, and Muslim hands are not clean. None of us can claim the moral high ground, yet the sins of all of us must be exposed and named for what they are. The question becomes, can Paul's description of love be applied to such appalling suffering? Should these things be remembered 
and if remembered, how? Ely Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winning author who wrote the book entitled Night, in that famous volume he describes his suffering and survival in the Auschwitz and Buchenwald concentration camps. On one occasion he was badly beaten by his supervisor in a slave labor factory. When the beating was finally over, a young French girl came over to him, wiped his face and told him, keep your anger, your hate, for another day, for later. The day will come, but not now. Wait, clench your teeth and wait. The French girl's call to remember evil reflects great courage, discipline, and a noble cry for justice. But along with that cry, we note the recent stunning work of Muroslav Wolf, professor of, divinity, of theology at Yale Divinity School, entitled The End of Memory, Remembering Rightly in a Violent World. The entire book is his answer to the question, so what is the relationship between remembering well and redeeming the past? To remember is not good enough. We must remember well. Every page of this volume offers profound reflections on the subject. No uh, subject of suffering and our memory of it. No quick summary is possible. Wolf, a Yugoslavian, was imprisoned and brutally interrogated for months by the communist security forces. His book is his Christian response to those experiences. One paragraph is particularly poignant and applicable to our subject. Wolf writes, By opening ourselves to God's love through faith, our bodies and souls become sanctified spaces, God's temples, as the Apostle Paul put it in Corinthians 6. The flame of God's presence which gives us new identity, then burns in us inextinguishably. Though like buildings devastated by wind and flood, our bodies and souls may become ravaged, yet we continue to be God's temple, at times a temple in ruins, but sacred space nonetheless. Absolutely nothing defines the Christian more than the abiding flame of God's presence. And that flame bathes in warm glow everything we do or suffer. He continues, being in God frees our lives from the tyranny that the unalterable past exercises with the iron fist of time's irreversibility. God does not take away our past. He gives it back to us. Fragments gathered, stories reconfigured, ourselves truly redeemed, people forever reconciled. Perhaps this is a part of what Paul means when he writes... Love keeps no account of wrongs. Memories of his suffering did not constantly return uninvited to the screen of his mind in the form of a nightmare or a mind-numbing daytime recollection. They were there. 
but they did not control his present or his future. At the same time, they were not buried, festering, unconsciously influencing all that he did and said. The pus was gone from the wounds. Yes, he could call up those memories when he needed to record them for others to read. But they never returned uninvited in the waking hours of the night. He kept no account of wrongs. Wolf did not simply remember. He remembered well. The need to be set free from the tyranny that the unalterable past exercises with the iron fist of time's reversibility. Irreversibility is our need. Having worked for decades with Middle Eastern peoples, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim, who have endured such wounds, unanswered questions remain. I cannot say more. I dare not say less. Our time is up, folks. I've got too much to say, and I just really can't go on. <laughs> I just mustn't, because, you know, the, the, the long-winded professor is just going to go on and on and on. But we've got a fantastic account here about, well, let, let's take just a couple of minutes to finish, finish our homework, to at least say something about the rest of this great page. After the list of wrongs, then he says, love never falls... The prophecy and the tongues and the knowledge are going to be discarded. That's in number 11. But faith, hope, and love are going to abide. The first is the lesser loves, of, and the other one is the uh, gifts, and the other is the more important gifts. How faith abides after faith is fulfilled and how hope abides how after hope is fulfilled is difficult, and we can wrestle with that. How love abides is easy. The not imperfect has got to go. That's in number three and in number four. In, uh, number, number 12 and in number 14. Number 14 is another wonderful image, brass maker's image. The only mirrors they had were polished brass. And whenever you went to get a, a, a mirror, the person making them would, would ask you, Who, what gods do you worship? Oh, well, I, I worship Aphrodite. Okay, fine. So then he would etch very, very faintly uh, Aphrodite on the front of your mirror. So when you get up on a Monday morning, you look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, you're right there with Aphrodite. Very nice. It gives you kind of a little jump start on a Monday morning. Uh, but uh, mind games. The, the surface tarnishes very quickly, and you're not really talking to Aphrodite, even though you find yourself with her. So we, now we look through a mirror dimly. But one day, the mirror is going to fall. And we will be talking to the one who loves us face to face. And that's what he's talking about. When he's talking about, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and I thought like a child. And I realized, uh, I reasoned like a child. He's not talking about when I was a little boy. He's talking about when I was young in faith. He's talking about the list up in number 11. Remember we talked about ring composition. Usually the center remained relates to the beginning and to the end. So when he was a child, he yelled and screamed and frothed at the mouth and pounded on the table about prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. Now that he's become a man, more mature in faith, he knows those are important, 
but they're not as important as faith, hope, and love. Those are the biggies. And he's got that sorted out in his mind. And he'll say, go after tongues, prophecy, and knowledge. Those are good. Go after them as long as you remember they're secondary to the other list. And then he concludes at the end and says, continue in zeal for the spiritual gifts. A fantastic hymn to love that is defined ultimately in the life and in the ministry and in the person of our Lord. And I hope that you will contemplate it and use it in your personal life and in your ministry and will remember it other than just at weddings. Okay. Our time is up. We have now uh, 30 minutes for any comment or question that you may care to ask. Dr. Bailey, what would you suggest for, for reprocessing our own anger into grace? We cannot do it without help. It's just not possible. The other options are strike back or bury it and become an angry person. To reach out in love the way we see in the parables of Jesus and in his own life, we're not going to make it without help. And that's why when, Paul, when, when Jesus tells them Easter night uh, that you are to fulfill your ministry in the way I fulfilled mine, he then breathes on them with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're asked to love God before we're asked to love our neighbor. Only as the love of God fills my life can I be sustained to reach out to others. And to love the enemy is not easy, especially when we've been hurt deeply by them. But it is not impossible with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. There's no other way. Dr. Bailey, I was just wondering about, with all the conflicts in the Middle East, as a, a third-party person between the two different, yes. uh, what was the best way to help them remember well or that you found that you could do anything with, even with people that weren't of the faith? How much uh, time do you have? Okay. <laughs> was there one or two things that you could suggest? I mean, this is too complex. We've got 17 countries in the Middle East, the Palestine-Israeli problem, very, very complex, gone on for 60 years. And, you, you know, you're, you're dealing with extremely complex issues that the person you're talking to is the person you have to talk to. And so your methodology is going to shift depending on who you are and where you are and what language you're talking in and how old the person is and what their experience of life is as over against yours. And you're kind of, both of you are, are sort of taking a, you're taking a, a you know, a, kind of like a bicycle lock and you've got to sort of spin those different parts of it and get it all lined up then it'll, you can pop the thing open. And you're talking to the person in front of you and you're trying to spin those dials and find out what their combination is. And then you'll be able to try and relate to them and try and move along this agenda. You don't come in cold and you don't come in with any quick answers to very complex problems. Dr. Bailey, I wonder if you could, for just a minute, speak to a topic you and I talked about a little earlier this evening. For many of us, your teaching is incredibly encouraging because it gives us insight into Scripture in a cultural and historical and linguistic way that we just don't possess. Yes. But it's also discouraging because I feel like I read the Scriptures and don't begin to touch the wealth that is there that you can open up for us, but unless you come to my house for dinner every night, 
I've got to find another way to get at this stuff. Could you just address that for a moment? Okay, now, what, the little speech you just gave is the speech that I give to, to my good friend uh, Tom Wright. You know, I tell him, Tom, if what you're doing is New Testament studies, then I ought to be digging ditches. And my, ta- and my friend Ben Viviano, who can read 15 languages and apologizes for the fact that he can only talk to you in 10 of them. And I think, God, he's in New Testament too, Roman Catholic, wonderful guy. And you know, gee whiz, these guys are so far ahead of me. My only way I can save my own soul on this matter is that doesn't matter where you are on the ladder. The question is, did you get there by climbing or falling? <laughs> We've all got a ways to go. You know, here I spent 35 years on First Corinthians, and I'm already seeing stuff that I left out that I should have written in in July when I sent in the final edition. Paul's mind is so far out ahead of mine, I could spend another 35 years, and I would never get to the end of what he's saying. I mean, it's incredible stuff. So, uh, as, as I was saying in the conversation that we had earlier, that uh, I don't want anybody to get discouraged because uh, it, you, all of us are kind of like, you go to a beach with your friends and there's, a, you know, clouds going by and there's a few seagulls and your fisherman comes by in a boat and the little kids are building a sandcastle and it's a nice bright day and the, and the waves are rolling in and you're having really a wonderful time with your friends and somebody says, Ken, I got a snorkel, extra one, come with me. So I put on the snorkel mask and all of a sudden I see the coral and the fish that I never saw before and the underwater sea life which I never saw before. Now, seeing all that wonderful stuff just under the surface, which I never saw before, in no way invalidates all the good stuff that I saw with my own eyes above the surface. So I'm not saying everybody is wrong. I'm merely saying the text is always out beyond us, and we can always learn from one another, and there is always a ways to go beyond where we are now. And if I can bring things that will bring a fresh insight, that's great. I'm, you know, that, that's what, what's what I do. You know, that's what I do. <laughs> and, and so I don't want anybody to be discouraged because you didn't have the time uh, or the, the, the uh, opportunity to spend the time to learn the various languages and you find that you're not quite as far up the ladder as I am. I'm, I'm telling you there are people so far ahead of me, uh, they're practically out of sight. So this, all of us have this same experience. Now, you mentioned also in our conversation earlier that sometimes we've got, it's not just a matter of turning on the color. You know, you've got a black and white TV, and Bailey can help you turn on the color. That's maybe helpful. But sometimes we've simply got it wrong. Like the centuries in which we have assumed that the prodigal comes and gives his speech, and then his father welcomes him. No, read the text. It says, the father had compassion, ran, fell upon his neck and kissed him. Then the kid gave his speech. And what difference does this make? Well, it's the difference between Islam and Christianity. That's the difference it makes. All right, we have read Jesus as a Muslim. He isn't. The prodigal in the far country is a Muslim. But Jesus is a Christian. All right, now, if I've managed to help you sort that out, that's great. There are times in which we just simply have got it wrong, and we need to try and straighten those places out. One of them we saw this morning, where we have assumed that Paul is telling the Corinthians that they are the tools in the hands of God to make the wise look stupid and make the powerful look weak. And my first question is, where did that ever happen? 
Where did these dumb, dumb Corinthians ever challenge the intellectual power of Athens? They wouldn't even get, know how to get there if they had to. And when did they ever speak truth to power in Roman power? They never did it. So what are you talking about, that the, the Corinthians are the instrument of God to make the wise look stupid? It's simply wrong. So we can sort that out and see he's not talking about the Corinthians. He's talking about the cross. All right, there are times, not very many in my life, where I think the tr our Western Christian tradition has got it dead wrong and we really need to straighten those critical points out. But those, you know, there aren't very many of those. I haven't found very many really pure diamonds out there that everybody else has missed. I'm just kind of going along with the crowd and trying to turn on a little color from the world of the cultural world of the Middle East and, for, and also the awareness of the, of, the, of the poetic structures that has not always been seen. Uh, don't worry about it. You know, just, <laughs> just hang in there with what you've got. We're only responsible before God with what we have, not with what somebody else has. Dr. Bailey, in light of what you've been preaching on tonight, which yes. is major league reconciliation, and also respecting all that you know in the scriptures of the nature of God yesterday, today, and yes. uh, to yes. come, yes. Um, my question is, do you think if Jesus Christ were here today in 2011, and he is, you know, but if yes. he were the way he was present, you know, in the time during his lifetime, would he look at any situation in the world going on in 2011 and be compelled to say that there should be righteous indignation, that he'd even feel that it was worthwhile to take arms, or should truly the only weapon of mass destruction for the Christian be prayer and caring? Uh, how much time do you have, ma'am? <laughs> I think when there's a madman on the top of a building in the town square with a high-powered rifle and shooting people, you got to get somebody up there to knock him out. Uh, I am horrified at war because I, I know how terrible they are. Been through seven of them. And I know the mind-destroying realities that take place. The twisting of all kinds of stuff. There's more horrible things happen when war, the dogs of war set loose. I've seen that up close. For years, and I know how horrible they are. So my instinctive reaction is, let us be very, very careful before we set loose those dogs of war. And when I look at our nation, I'm obliged to say we have not always been very, very careful. Other nations can say the same thing. But let us realize how horrible, especially modern warfare, good grief, so horrible. The question is, how do I know if I'm angry? Uh, and so what do, I, what do I need to do to alert that? I, I think that's a good question because I think usually we know when we're angry. But there are people who are just kind of angry all the time at everything. It's kind of built into the way they react to the world at large out there. And... Uh, um, so how do, how do we help people like that see that they really, on a very deep level, are just their whole psyche has got a huge amount of anger that seems quite often kind of ready to explode in self-destructive and destructive ways for others. And am, am I something? Do I have some of that? Well, I probably need a spiritual advisor to help me discover that. I probably will not be able to discover that on my own. Uh, I, about every three years, I reread 
Viktor Frankl's wonderful book entitled Man's Search for Meaning. And this is a, a Jewish psychiatrist from Vienna who as a young man was taken into the death camps and, after, and he survived three years of Auschwitz and Dachau. And he's written this book, the first half of the book, it's only about 150 pages and you can read it in one sitting. I find it so engrossing that I can't put it down. Usually I pick it up about 7 o'clock and I keep reading until I've read through it. I read it again just last week. As I say, I read it about every three years. It is so compelling. Here is a man who is, is, is got, he, all that he suffered, he talks about, but he talks about because he is a thinking man and he's analyzing himself and the people around him. And he keeps talking about the fact that he says everything was taken from us, absolutely everything, except the freedom to choose how we were going to respond. He said we could surrender that, but it could not be taken from us. And it was very easy. We are being treated with brutality, so we begin to brutalize the guy sleeping on the next bench next to us as an automatic, instinctive reaction. But that's a choice. You don't have to do that. And then he talks with eloquent language about how the things that we have suffered, if they are suffered with dignity, become treasures that are like a reservoir in our past that are available as a healing power for ourselves and for those around us. It is so eloquent. It is just absolutely stunning what this man has to say. And I recommend it for anybody who wants to talk about suffering and the response to suffering. And he says over and over, he says, those who have suffered do not have the right to cause others to suffer. And there's an awful lot of people loose in our world in all of our communions, who think if they have suffered, this gives them the right to be angry at somebody else. And Viktor Frankl, who's been there, says no. It doesn't. Good question. I don't have a full answer. But I think we're going to need help to find out if there are places in our own souls where we've got unresolved anger that we've not processed into grace. I think that's true of all of us. And we need one another as a community to find those places and get to work on them. Yes, Dr. Bailey, um, given my understanding of anger, yes. I, I find it a little hard to understand how God could be angry, given everything he knows about our hearts and the situations in which we make our choices. I can understand how Jesus in his humanity yes. is going to be angry. But when I think of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And I think of, of uh, you know, Jonah in the people of Nineveh where God says these people don't know their right hand from their left. Yeah. Those sorts of affirmations seem to undercut the possibility of being angry at those people who don't know right from wrong or mm -hmm. what they're doing. So, I don't know if you can help me understand how, right. how God the Father... Okay, I suggest that you get a concordance angry. of the Bible and you'll find that in, in the Hebrew Scriptures there's about 250 times in which God is angry. 
and check those out and see why he's angry. Usually he's angry because his people have broken the covenant. That's usually why he's angry. And the anger there is not an irritated self-presence. It is a un... Uh, uh, William Temple's got this in wonderful language and I don't have it in front of me. A sort of unrelenting unwillingness to accept evil causes a, a determination that that should be opposed. This is not, you upset my ego and I'm angry. No. It's that opposition to injustice and opposition to evil that is relentless. It doesn't give up. And that's the anger that we're talking about. And, you know, in, in a covenant, any covenant, whether it's a covenant of marriage or whether it's God's covenant with his people, when a covenant is broken, the person that is wronged is supposed to be angry. If I have a covenant of marriage with my dear wife of the last 59 years and one of us breaks that covenant and the other person doesn't get angry, then you have to ask the question, was the covenant serious? Did you really mean it? How deep was it? So it's, it's that, those are the, the, the awareness of anger. The biblical understanding of anger moves in that direction, not just a sort of affronted self-pride uh, or something of that kind. Yeah, Scripture is full of it. And Jesus has parables. People get angry. I think his prayer for forgiveness only takes on its full meaning when we understand that he is, has reprocessed that tremendous sense of I am being unjustly treated. What did I do that you're doing this to me? Nothing. He has to reprocess that, that, he's, that he might offer the forgiveness that we see him offering. Or he's not fully human. And to try and sort out, well, here's the human Jesus talking and here's the divine Jesus talking, this, we just can't go there because... That, we just, we just can't do that. It's, his divinity and his humanity are a package that is inseparable, and our great creeds have always affirmed that. Yeah, welcome. Very good question. Thank you for the question. Anyone? Yes. Uh, I really appreciate your work in translation. My concern, however, is that um, uh, when when you show errors that have been made in past yeah. translations, yes. doesn't that reinforce the Islamic belief that we shouldn't translate at all? And I, I wanted to hear your support for translating, even with the, the mistranslations that go on and errors that Okay, if we like don't that. translate, then we end up with a sacred language and a sacred culture. The Christian faith says there, says there is no sacred language and there is no sacred culture. There are languages that can be baptized into Christ and become cradles for the word of God. Laman Sané, the great Ghanaian uh, theologian who is professor at Yale University, in his book, Translating the Message, I recommend that to you very highly, will give you a full answer to that, and he talks about the fact that the missionary movement of the 19th and the 20th centuries has been very misunderstood popularly in the Western world, particularly amongst the press and certain types of academics, because he says when people came and translated the Bible into our language, then our language became a sacred language. 
And quite often, it, this was the first time that our, uh, our, our African language could write. And now we can write. This means we can preserve our poems. We can preserve our songs. We can preserve our history. And we can preserve our culture. And so the coming of the Christian faith gave us tools to preserve our culture. It did not it superimpose somebody else's. Nobody told the Africans that they have to become Europeans or they have to become Americans or they have to become Arabs, which is what Islam told them. The Dinkas were told, in Christ you can become a better Dinka. And the Nuers were told, in, in to, to become a Christian you will be a better Nuer. And that's why we have had in the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there were 5 million Christians in Africa, and today there are 385 million Christians in Africa because the Africans heard that and they said, yes, and that's for us. Let me tell you a wonderful story that's happened in the fairly recent past. A village amongst the Shuluks of the South Sudan, an all-Muslim village, and the Christians of the South Sudan, in this case, I yeah, I think it was the Presbyterians because it came to me through Presbyterian sources. And this is not American Presbyterians. It's, it's, it's called the Evangelical Church of the South Sudan decided that they wanted to have an outreach to this all-Muslim Shuluk village, not Arab village. So there, the, the village is all-Muslim and the village had a little school where they taught the Arabic language and the memorization of the Koran. So the Evangelical Church decided we're going to set up a little school that's going to teach Bible and writing, reading, and arithmetic. All right? One family after another in the village thought that their little boy might have a better life and might have more opportunities in the future if he, he or she managed to learn reading, writing, and arithmetic rather than just Arabic and memorizing the Koran. So one family after another took their kids out of the Muslim school and put them into the Christian school. The sheikh, himself a shuluk, his name was Ali, and he started no noticing that he was losing students, so he wandered across town in the morning about the time they started school, and they always started with prayers, and walked in, oh, come on in, Sheikh Ali, we're glad to have you, wouldn't you like to join us, we're going to have prayers? No, he said, I'll sit at the back, and in the middle of the service, he began to weep. And the Shuluk evangelist was kind of upset. He thought, what, what did we do to upset our good brother, Sheikh Ali, here? And so after the service, and the kids went to their classroom, began their studies, he went to the Sheikh and says, oh, we saw you weeping in the middle of the service. What, what, what are you weeping about? And the Sheikh said, they told us that God only understands Arabic. And that God's word can only be in the Arabic language and we must read it in Arabic. I heard you reading the Injil, the gospel, in Shuluk. And that means that our language can be a sacred language and it's okay to talk to God in Shuluk. And it's okay for me to be a Shuluk and a worshiper of God. And he's weeping. The whole village is now Christian. <laughs> There's your answer. No sacred language. No sacred culture. Every culture can be baptized into Christ. And when that happens, some new things will be added. Some things will be enhanced. And some things will have to go. But when we get done... Our identity will be preserved 
and enhanced in Christ. And that's what has happened all over the world. That's why the two-thirds world is, you know, <clears throat> Western Christianity for about 600 years was a, a, a controlled what it is to mean Christian. You know that every, every the, the story about why is a dog with a broken tail envied by all other dogs. And the reason is that every dog has his day, but this dog has his weekend. That. Okay. Western Christianity. <laughs> this is the jester's hat. I should put it on. I should put it on, Jude. Yeah, I really should. So, so Western Christianity has had its weekend. Now Africa, Asia, and South America are the dominant voice in the Christian world. And we've got a lot to learn from them. We've got a lot to learn from them. My, my question has to do with... Um anger and the role of judgment in the life of God. You've given us this incredible narrative of the grace that runs through all of scripture. Yeah. Just yeah. like in the beginning there was light and at, in the last chapter right. of Revelation Christ is the light. Right. Yeah. And you've told us how at the very heart of the life of God at great cost to himself is yeah. grace. So can you just talk a little bit about um, in eschatology, especially at the end times with the division um, that we see in Chris, in right. you know, in faith, sheep and the goats, and all that. Sheep and goats, judgment, right. and how is that reprocessed into grace, or what role does that play in the finality of things and in the life of God? You've asked an enormous question, which I can't give an adequate answer. Simp- It's beyond me. It's a mystery. It's beyond me. I know there's judgment. I don't understand it. It has to do with sin. (laughs) Time's up, right? Okay. Right. (laughs) Uh, I guess you'll have to come back next year to uh, answer that one. Am I still on? Am I still on? Uh, the, the wonderful richness of the Arabic language uh, spoken by Christians and Jews and Muslims has got thousands of proverbs, and one of them is one for every occasion. And so there's one for this occasion. The one who lights a fire is warmed by it. Thank you. <laughs>